Hello, I am Katie Bowman, and this is the Move Your DNA podcast. I am a biomechanist and the author of Move Your DNA and seven other books on movement. On this show, we talk about how movement works on the cellular level, how to move more, and how to move more of yourself, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome here. Are you ready to get moving? There's a phrase I've been thinking a lot about lately, quote, in it for the long haul. It means to commit, to stay with something, to see something through. We can think about commitment in all kinds of ways. There are long-term relationships of all kinds. There's writing a book, right? That also requires staying in it for the long haul. And how do you do it? How do you stay in for the long haul? Do you just keep showing up? And time passes, and the next thing you know, you've been in it, whatever it is, for the long haul. But maybe it's more purposeful than that. If things work over the long haul, then it's more than just your presence over time. It's you doing an active thing over and over again to be in it for the long haul. Take, for instance, long-distance walking. And I imagine that most of you knew that I was going to get around to mentioning long-distance walking eventually. So I do a lot of long-distance walking I just got done doing an urban 20-miler last week as research for an upcoming project. And P.S., it is totally different. 20 urban miles than 20 hiking miles in a a rural setting. And I think long-distance walking is actually vitally important, both in my life and for the human species as a group. So I am excited to interview a guest, no, not me, who has a lot to say about long-distance walking. And we'll hear some of her tips. And I have a few of my own to share as well, obviously. But first, let's start our walk by moseying over to move your DNA mailbag. Hey, Katie. One movement I struggle to incorporate in my regular life is backbending. Do you consider backbending a natural and essential movement for humans? Do you have some suggestions for stack your life moves that can help me get more of it? I use a dynamic workstation at my 9 to 5, and I aim to walk more always, and I'm slowly transitioning to furniture free, and I love your thoughts. Thank you. And that's signed, Zoe. So if you were here, Zoe, my first question would be what you mean by backbending. And if you mean having your feet on the ground with your hands also on the ground behind you with your body arched up in between, I would say no, I would not put that in the category of natural movement as I use the term, which are motions found in nature at a certain consistency, volume, and distribution. So any motion A or some human bodies can do isn't part of that definition, meaning I'm delineating between motions the body can do because of their natural hard and software motions versus motions you'd actually find ancestrally, not an outlier per se. And note, this isn't a judgment on a move being good or bad or anything. And I I just wouldn't categorize it as a movement found in nature. Although as I was thinking about your question, it's a fun, it's a fun side note for me. I don't know how it is for your listeners. Maybe also if you're a cultural or physical anthropologist, if a backbend has become a human movement in a particular culture, it could end up being that every culture has its own set of motions required for the success of that culture, and a backbend could be in that group. But again, I'm just using the term natural movement differently. 
Now, if you didn't mean back bend, but just extension of the spine. So if everyone stands up and if you shift your hips back over your heels, all right, so you're going to start with a vertical leg where your pelvis is really stacked over, over your over the back of your foot and not over your toes. So you're going to start to lean back, but you're not going to let the pelvis thrust forward, right? So there's a tendency when we lean back for the hips to go forward too. So I want you to keep your pelvis where it is. Keep your hips where they started and start to lean back. I'm going to move away from the mic. Um, And you're going to start extending your spine. So you will, this is where it gets a little bit challenging. You're not going to let the rib cage thrust. Your, your rib cage is going to rotate backwards. It's going to sit backward a little bit, but I need you to know the difference between your rib cage tipping backwards through spinal extension or your rib cage just sliding forward at the bottom, which is it wouldn't really be that you've articulated each vertebrae. It would be that you've really articulated one a great amount and the others not so much. So you are going to still drop your ribs even as you start to lean back into this extension or slight back bend is probably how I would use to quantify it differently than back bend being the full arch. So this whole body spinal extension motion, right? So that's with your feet planted and you're, you've leaned as far back as you can go and maybe even let your head go back. You're not going to let it drop back. You're going to control it but you've got that extension. This whole body spinal extension motion is made up of each vertebrae extending a little bit. And I do think that this motion, vertebral extension, is natural in the sense that I think many movements done day-to-day in nature would call on vertebral extension, although maybe it wouldn't be the entire spine done at once. The way we practice it as an exercise. So if I'm thinking stack your life principles, I would say that picking up heavy things is a place where I use it a lot. And I'm thinking of moving rocks. We just built a rock wall from river rocks around our house. And we just got done doing some training with the folks at MoveNat and took a sort of deadlift move. I think a lot of times people will do a deadlift in a gym, right? Where they, they'll hip hinge and they'll move forward bending over at the hips, usually carrying a weighted bar, and then stand back up. So we took that hip hinge into lifting and moving heavy planting pots and squash. We had some really big, heavy squash. Just to think about, like, you know, if you're going out to the pumpkin patch, here would be a stack-your-life motion. So a good lifting technique uses spinal extension pretty naturally because... Keep in mind that spinal extension being a natural movement doesn't say anything about the degrees of extension that are natural. So just because extension is natural doesn't imply that full end range would be called upon that frequently or even at all. So that's always my call to people studying and teaching movement is that if we could communicate in terms of numbers or amounts, things would be less conflated, I think. So anyway, imagine if you were bending over to pick something off the ground and you had kind of centered your body to it, right? So there's not an element of twist yet. When you would go to pick it up, you would usually have an amount of extension in your spine. The amount of extension you have in your spine really going to depend on what you were lifting and where you had to move it. But for me, that's where I will often 
call on the musculature of my back. Like if you go back to that standing back bend and leaning back, you're not doing a ton of, it's not really, it's not really weighted, right? That back bend is really more a range of motion. You're able to get into the range of motion, but the work's more on the front of your body, right? You'll usually feel in your abdomen, maybe the fronts of your thighs. When you're bent over though, let's say you're at 90 degrees with your torso to the floor. And sorry if my voice is moving around, I'm actually doing this. I, I am such a mover as I teach, which makes teaching via podcast really challenging. I'm all the way down here by the floor. When you're at 90 degrees, now your spine is not only going through that extension motion, but that extension motion, those extensors are carrying the weight of your spine where they're not doing it through that same back bend. So now we have a question of what, it's not even the motion that's particularly nourishing, it's the load, right? So I can have a back bending motion that is the same of me standing versus me carrying a 40 pound pot and those moves are different. And so it's challenging, I think, to only think in terms of range of motion and mobility. I think it's easier to think in terms of load because then you can figure out, oh, a back bend is a completely different load than me being able to pick up something 40 pounds and not only carry it with the, my legs and my arms, but to have my spine be able to extend and carry that load. So carrying heavy stuff, Zoe, would, would be the carrying heavy stuff, would be the forward answer. And if you can wade through that 3,000 or 5,000 word answer, well done. Okay, that was a great question. Hopefully there's a little bit of clarity there. Okay, we're going to get to our interview now, but I just wanted to throw a shout out to our sponsors, the Dynamic Collective. Later on in this episode, we're going to meet Mike Daly at Earthrunners and find out what drives him over the long haul. Earthrunners is a member of our Dynamic Collective of companies that support this podcast. Thank you, Dynamic Collective. These companies are Soft Star Shoes, My Mayu, and Unshoes. These are all minimal shoe companies as well as Earthrunners. And then Venn Design, which makes beautiful minimal home furnishings. I interviewed Tyler from Venn in the last episode. I know their products very well, and you may too. And this season, we've been getting to know the people behind the products. I've really loved this kind of side interview series. I feel like I am friends with all of the people who are making things I depend on. There are also so many fascinating journeys out there that I hope as people are listening and just thinking about their life and their work that they can just see. Like, I feel like when I was trying to figure out what I would do, that I just had a very narrow model of what was possible. So I just like, I like seeing all the possibilities out there. Every journey, fascinating or otherwise, starts with a single step, as the old saying goes. We've asked our next guest to come equipped with three steps to get you started. Dami Rossi is a certified life coach, blogger, walker, and hiker, and author of Walking Gone Wild, How to Lose Your Age on the Trail, which if you follow me on social media, you have seen. I've shared it a couple of times because it is definitely, I would say, a much needed and appreciated book. Uh, Dami, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk to your listeners. Yeah, I'm very excited. So just a little bit of background. You know, when you write books, it's like it's hard enough to write it. And then it's maybe even more challenging to edit it after an editor has gone through it. 
But then you have to get other people to read it before it's even out so that you've got, you know, blurbs and other people who are in your same industry just kind of summing up maybe key points who the book is for. And so I was asked to do a blurb for your book and it was right along the same time as I was finishing up Dynamic Aging or maybe I was in the... Yeah, it it was out already. Yeah, Yeah. okay, so publicity of doing Mm -hmm. Dynamic Aging. So I'm not sure if you reached out on Twitter or one other of these amazing social media connectors, but I was very excited to have this book because Dynamic Aging has all these correctives and lifestyle adjustments to get you moving more. And then it's like Dami had written really like the part two. Yes. It's the way I looked at it, which is like, okay, now that you're inspired, everyone, but certainly goldeners, right? There's not that many books written for people over 50 explicitly. And so I want to, before we get into that, I want to talk about how walking and hiking became a thing for you. Ah, yes. Well, I mean, I've walked all my life. I grew up in Holland and without a car. So um, that wasn't anything new, but it became a thing, as you said, bigger thing when my life fell apart in my late 50s. And I, uh, my husband was, uh, had a progressive illness um, and I lost him uh, quite soon after that. And so when your life falls apart, <laughs> what better thing to do, at least in my book, <laughs> Yeah. is to go for a walk and clear your head and figure out now now what do I do with my life? Uh, how do I go about this? Because I felt very off balance. As many older women that I talk to now, they experience that. When you lose a life partner, you're like somebody ripped half of your body off and you're literally not walking in balance. And so a walk is was one of the better things I could do. And then got me started on, you know, what incredibly beneficial walking and I went to the Himalayas I didn't just like do a walk around the block no (laughs) (laughs) and I hiked in the high mountains I wanted to truly I wanted to get lost yeah Uh, I didn't want to come back and I found what I was made of I found what it did for me and so I'm actually working on a memoir about that trip right now hopefully that will come out next year but um you know, I really saw the benefits of it. And then I thought, you know, I, I just started using it in my daily life to deal with depression, deal with unhappiness. And, um, and I became a hiker and a backpacker. And I started doing the long trail, which is not something necessarily that you promote. But um, what I have found, you know, reading your books is like, yeah, it's a perfect marriage of these two, you know, because a lot of people say, well, I can't walk that far. Well, go read Katie first and Mm -hmm. do what she says. And then you'll become somebody who can walk too and use it for other purposes. Yeah. So I think at the end goal, the point is to kind of reclaim this, you know, there's a lot of terms for it, you know, like rewilding or being able to engage in nature with not much more than your physical self, right, in the way that humans have for a long period of time. And so definitely long-distance walking is a category of natural movement that we cover. And I'm just so pleased. I have a question. like, So I can see now how walking, trekking, wilderness engagement became your your Mm -hmm. thing, your salve almost, right? Right. From where you were. Yes, it was. Yeah. How, how did you make that leap to then want to help others do it? 
Well, I was no, I don't think I was quite retired. I was teaching, you know, local women about a, a small class about, you know, backpacking for women. Because as you do it, you talk to others and you realize that a lot of them, well, they don't have the gear. They don't know how to go about it. So I said, well, I'll do, I'll do a six-week class. And I put material together and, and then I thought, I need to have a little book. You know, this is, if we're going to do this, um, rather than all these handouts. So I, I just decided one November to just start writing a little handbook that we could use. And I wrote the handbook. I realized that doing, you know, classes as I was here locally um, was a lot of hard work and that it, you know, then I started thinking more about reaching a larger audience with it. And I thought maybe I can do online seminars and that was all new stuff for me. So I started thinking bigger and that's how the book grew. And as I was writing it and talked to my, my publisher, she said, well, you know, we need to spice it up. <laughs> and I want to hear your your stories and yeah. I want and I had stories in there already to encourage people but you know then we added all my journal entries and um you know really made it a book that people can just pick up enter anywhere and that's what a lot of my readers say I can just have that laying there open it up and I read something that like oh I hadn't thought about that or uh so it's it's very accessible at all points of the book so that's what happened. It is very accessible. And I think there's a lot of people timid around nature. Anytime I do a post on me being out in nature, the bulk of the response is just how scary so many people find some element, whether it's bugs or weather or just some yeah. danger. Like they just perceive so much danger out mm -hmm. there. And so I have suggested, well, if you're, if you're feeling too timid, so at least start reading. Mm -hmm. the journals and stories of people who have overcome that fear and who have, it's not just simply overcoming fear. You've adapted, no. you've increased your ability to know what nature is doing. And so it is less fearful when you have knowledge, you know, and experiential knowledge, all the better. So, mm -hmm. you know, books are so funny. Like there's how-to books and then there's memoirs. And I would say that Walking Gone Wild is definitely a how-to book, but it has been spiced up. So well done for your editor, just because you are sharing your experience, which yes. it grounds the book into a real person did this and a real person transitioned from mm -hmm. not doing it to mm -hmm. being able to do it, which is way different than a person who's always done it. Yes. Writing a book, I, I find value in someone who's changed, you know, who's changed through the process. Their work has emerged because of their personal journey. I appreciate that perspective quite a bit. Right. I had something to say about that, um, okay. about people and their fear of going out and all the different things they imagine. The truth is, I am always fearful, or I'm not a fearful person, but when you prepare for a big trip or to go out into the wild, there, there's an anxiety. It's like each time you have to make a transition from this sort of safe, you know, seemingly safe these days, it isn't a uh, home environment to where you're unprotected and vulnerable. But as soon, and this is what I, I'm so passionate about, come with me, feel it. As soon as you're walking and breathing and you're out there, that fear just drops. Once you have one day under your belt, it's like, oh, I belong here. And that was, I think, the greatest discovery that I had that you know, I feel actually protected by 
the trees and and the natural world this is this is my world and mm-hmm. we've lost that in our society people are just you know they've been cut off from that and that is so sad so your work focuses mainly on women over the age of 50 mm-hmm. why did you why why did you choose that group because um i think we're underserved and um I know the group. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm Intimately. <laughs> yes. And when I look for, for hiking and guiding books, there, is, there isn't one for women specifically. Mm-hmm. And also, there are s- certain things that happen in women's bodies after menopause. And those are the things that I address in the book. And when a woman says, when I did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, she says, oh, thank you. I'm 50. I had no idea that you could do this. You know, yeah, I thought it was just on a downhill, and I'm going. No, we're not on a downhill. Well, actually, you're not on a downhill. You are not. No, and for women especially, that's why you know men can learn from this too. But men operate differently. But women have this sort of boost that they get that testosterone thing that happens after you've been done with after you're done with menopause. There's an energy that kind of cuts loose, which makes them these, what they call the badass women who want to go out and, you know, and find out what they're worth still, what their bodies can do. And I think it speaks to women like that. So Yeah. Well, I definitely feel, I feel like your book is valuable for anyone who just, like you said, that idea that I belong here in the natural world. I, I think that your book is a tool for any human being interested in dipping a toe at first, right? It's very stepwise. Yes, that's what I did. You know, it's what I do is not for everyone. And I always no. say that this is not for everyone, you know, because of what you have done in your life, your body, you know, not everybody can do what I do. If you've been an athlete all your life, go for it. You can probably do this. But if you've never even walked, let's, you know, let's set a different goal here at this point. But that doesn't mean that it can't benefit. As you say in your books, it is, you know, it makes you a healthier person who can enjoy life as we age. We are going to age, but how we age, that's our choice. It says how to lose your age on the trail. So what does that mean to you? Well, it's actually literal, but it's also a metaphor because you find your you build this confidence when you when you walk when you hike day hikes regularly if you don't have to think twice about going out for a five to eight mile hike you are a confident person at 65 Mm. and that makes you someone who fits in a younger category you know you're not always wondering about oh you know Will it be dangerous or can I do it or no, I'm going to go do this. So in your mind, you lose a sense of age. You know, I have that story in my book where I meet this woman who happens to be my same age and I go, oh, she looks pretty. She must be quite old doing this. And then when I find out how old she is, I'm going, do I look like that? I don't mm. feel like that. I feel like I'm 35 right now, you know, right. <laughs> trekking along. And so. That's how you lose your age. But literally, I mean, the research, and I, I put that in my book, shows you that it slows down aging if you move and walk daily. And um, I am a lot more stiff when I'm at home. When right. I'm on the trail for a couple of weeks and I'm just walking and crouching and bending and doing all that stuff all day, I am not stiff in the mornings or at night. Now, I, you know, I try to 
not sit <laughs> that much, but we end up sitting. We sit in chairs. And I am a lot more stiff now than when I'm on the trail. So that should tell you. And the other thing that I found out, I don't know that, I don't think it's in my book, is by hiking and, and backpacking and carrying so much, my bone density was what's at osteopenia. And a lot of women are concerned about it, their bone density as they age. Mine has increased in the last four years by 3.75%. Yeah. Huge. Take heed, everyone. Huge. Listen. Listen to what yeah. Demi's saying. Okay. So I feel like everyone now who's listening is like nodding and going, okay, yes. All right. So we want to give... We're each going to give three action items. These are actions that anyone listening can take now in whatever form to help support this. I'm going to call it long distance nature walking. But again, remember, it's scalable. So if you have never done five miles, long distance walking is five miles right now to you or three, right? So you just have to scale the words. We're not talking about a 500 mile or a thousand mile through hike. It's just Look at where you're moving right now and then just add some to it. And that's the marker that we're suggesting. So what is your first tip? Well, the first thing is make sure your body's in working order. And, you know, if you have never walked, I mean, you and I put it in my book, check with your physician, you know, do not just start in and then hurt yourself. You can, you know, you can develop strains, sprains, you know, cracks in your bones from doing too much at once. Uh, Your enthusiasm may be there, but maybe your body can't, maybe you have underlying things that you don't even know about. And when you put the stress on it, and as we're older, we need to be responsible about that. Young too, but younger people can often do more. They can take on those challenges, but at our age, um, we need to really make sure, am I in good enough shape to go do this? And your doctor will tell you, yeah, you can walk five miles or you can, you know, you can do more than that. So then you have that. Also, as you say, you know, can you do all these different moves? You know, you're not just upright. You're going to be stepping up and crouching at times. And so start doing exercises and get your body aligned. If your body isn't aligned, walking is not going to be pleasant. Now, we all have things that aren't working very well anymore in our late 50s and it just gets worse. So you find ways of adapting to deal with things. Uh, I have a leg that is is not completely straight because of an ACL that ha- had replaced, you know, 20 years ago. And it's it's showing up as you age because you're not walking completely balanced. So I have to find ways to to make that work. I have to be aware of that and not overdo it. But as a friend of mine says, she says, well, it hurts if I don't walk, so I might as well walk, and then mm. it hurts also. Yeah. You know, I know what to do. About it. So that's the first important thing. Get your body in working order, whatever that takes. That is a great tip. Yes, it is a, it's a delicate balance between getting all your parts strong enough to walk before you start walking, because sometimes some of the parts are only strengthened through walking, right? So I just as everyone yes. out there listening, it's like, you're going to have to kind of self-experiment a little bit. Like, I don't want everyone to feel like they have to stay in at home practicing their corrective exercises to adjust all of their parts before they take Mm -hmm. a step. Because the steps are where you identify the pieces. And you might be perfectly great at eight miles, but once you start going to 12 miles, then something Mm -hmm. that wasn't bothering you at, at eight miles starts to, and then you have to revisit those foundational moves, the exercises, the stuff that you'll find a lot more in my work. So just keep in yeah. mind that it's not 
one and then the other. It's a relationship that you will keep visiting. Even me, like it takes me to do 30 or 40 miles before I realize a part that is different than its kind of symmetrical part, like one hip or one side of my SI joint or whatever. And it's only through engaging in volume that I identify it and then know what to do or how to adjust the rest of my time. So it just, again, it's that relationship. But my tip is, I would say very similar to yours, only it's a little bit smaller. My tip is to prepare your feet and ankles well. And of course, knees and hips, et cetera. It's just that usually I find that when you've prepared your feet and ankles, when you've really carved out time to take a look at this, you know, your, your feet and ankles carry 25% of the number of bones and muscles in your body, and every step is going to pass through them. They have been the part of the body that when I have escorted many people on 20 and 30 mile walks, that's the part that prevents the rest of the body from moving. You know, it's like the shoulder usually isn't the thing that makes you have to sit down. It's the feet. It is the feet. So if you're trying to figure out Mm -hmm. how to get your body in working order, I suggest starting with with the feet and the ankles. That's why I've written two books on it, because I think you can go a long way in your alignment, your whole body gait, just by dealing with your feet and the ankles, which keeps it from being overwhelming. And pay attention to red flags that come up. Don't ignore red flags. You don't have to sit down because of them, but Mm -hmm. you want to note them. And in your training time, I know you recommend lots of training that you have training specific to whatever flag has come up for you. Okay. Yeah. So next tip. Okay. So the next tip is training. And you already said it, you know, for some people, it may be uh, training one mile a day. For others, it's five miles a day or every other day. And then if you want to call them the long hikes, you've got to really put a program together. But if you want to become a walker and be comfortable, you have to do it. And adding to that, so it's not just walking that will straighten everything out. Like you said, you do your foot exercises, you do your Pilates or whatever you do to strengthen all the parts of your body that are involved in movement to be able to take the load and to get the endurance. And then the third part is your aerobic training. I became a rower in my late fifties and I think I am thankful when I'm, you know, climbing at 13,000 feet, six (laughs) miles up. Um, I thank my rowing training where we do these long, steady workouts at a low rating, you know, for my heart, that my heart can take it. So for altitude, there's very specific training that you can do. So you have to become comfortable with training. And then the other part is strength training. I don't know if you talk much about that in your book, but, you know, after 50, it starts after 30 anyway. But after 50, you have to really adopt It's like your new religion. I have to do my strength training two or three times a week or you lose muscle. There's no way around it. Nutritious Movement recommends maintaining your strength and ability to carry your body and other things. We just use different, you know, we don't do reps and, you know, it's like, can you squat? Can you rise up out of a chair easily? Because that's body resistance as the strength. But also my tip, too, is along that same line which is the idea of carrying. I think that 
part of the decline of strength is that we live in an extremely convenient culture. You know, if you go to a place where you're going to get the load of things that you require, they go into a little box on wheels that you push around the store and load up all that weight and just push it with your fingertips. And then you push that wheeled cart right into the bigger cart with wheels and then drive it into the house. And so, yep. And as I say to people, walk to your store, get your groceries, but I have to get a backpack, put them in there. Yeah. If you can't carry, you know, a week's worth, go more frequently and carry smaller loads until you can do it <laughs> if you yeah. want to do it that way. Yeah. So this second tip is start carrying more stuff in your daily life and it fits in to the training. If you're, and I, I can see a lot of people mm-hmm. saying, you know, I don't have time to do all this training no, to be able yeah. to do it. And I was like, just walk to the store. Load up your groceries and walk back. Because if you can't do that comfortably, then that's the point at which you train. Because putting a bunch of gear on your back and then trying to go longer and farther is only going to be that skill that you can't do right now heightened. The magnitude is greatly increased. So you can train throughout your life. And remember that like this trekking, this long walks that we're talking about isn't really only walking. It's bending, carrying, stooping, stepping high, stepping low, uphill, downhill. There's a lot of variance to it. Yep. And so you, when you train, you want to make sure that you can do it with weight also on your body. So just look for that more complex terrain as you're walking home from the store or wherever else you're going to carry your, I don't know, if you're going out to get pumpkins for the holiday right now, then you can think about walking there and carrying them back and then learning great technique for carrying like alignment isn't only about how you're walking and standing Mm -hmm. there are ways to wear your backpack there are ways to carry and lift loads in your arms and with your legs that are more advantageous in other ways so you want to just invest in a little education that gives you more sustainability and also regeneration of your form as you're starting to add the volume of movement i agree so you know like I always say I don't do my strength training in the summer, but that's not true. In the summer, I am outside, I'm gardening, I'm doing all kinds of things that involve weight. And I keep that in my life because I don't particularly like the gym or to go do certain, you know, reps or anything. I want it to be a natural part of my life. So I totally agree with you. All right. What's your third tip? The third one is to gather your gear. I mean, if you want to become a walker, it starts with your footwear, your clothing. And I always say to people, if you really want to become a walker, have the gear that doesn't stop you from going outside when it's raining or when it's too hot or when it's too cold, that it's right there by the front door. You know, you have the the shoes for it or you have traction devices. I mean, I go hiking in the snow and I have gear for that. And I don't want to be stopped by weather. Mm -hmm. And then if you're thinking about, of course, going um, for day hikes or longer hikes, uh, you need to gather stuff for that. And one of the important things is if you're going outside of, you know, cell phone range that you have some kind of personal locator, you have some a medical kit, you have the real basics to start taking care of yourself in case you fall, you trip, something happens. Um, I always carry all that with me, um, and I have had to help many other people 
And I had the right thing in my backpack. And people don't think about taking, oh, I'm just going for a little hike up in the hills here or, you know, um, down the beach. Um, I, I just carry my backpack and there's a little weight in it. And so I'm always carrying a little weight on my back when I do yeah. that. Yeah, and for those of you, like if it's sounding expensive just to be able to go outside and move, just keep in mind used gear. You know, we're fortunate. I live in a, a very outdoorsy area, so this might be more challenging to find in more urban areas, although maybe not. There's no, more people I don't think in more so urban anymore. areas. Mm-hmm. You know, look for gear swaps. Look at garage sales. We pick up all of our outdoor gear secondhand for very little money. But again, it helps when you've got communities of people. So reach out to your local hiking groups and ask. They usually hold gear swaps. If you have kids, you know, nature organizations, feel free to reach out. Our library lets out, leases out safety gear for Mm -hmm. backcountry. So you don't have to buy guides and compasses like they they rent it out in the same way that you can check out a book you can check out gear so before you feel like already like where there's an obstacle or a barrier like you can't afford it there's a lot of people out there who recognize that this is a barrier who have taken steps to keep it from being such a big barrier so make sure you look into that as well yes yes. (laughs) my third tip also kind of goes along with yours It's practicing discomfort. Mm. There's a lot of practices and there's the practice of movements and, you know, how to stand and how to move in an optimal way and like the optimal gear. But sometimes we get so used to being super comfortable to have everything that we could possibly want at your fingertips. The more equipment or gear that that takes or the less variance in situation in which you feel comfortable that becomes sort of a cast, right? Like if you have this huge load yeah. that you can't be comfortable without seven varieties of a particular food or whatever, mm-hmm. then that preference for having everything that you want at all times really becomes a limitation on where you can go and for how long. And so one of the things that I've practiced on a 20-mile walk, for example, is I'll take water. I mean, I won't take a huge camel bag, but I'll take the amount of water that I feel comfortable with. I'm not saturated in water. And I'll take a couple snacks, but I won't pack three meals if I'm going to be out for eight hours. Like, I can be okay without eating every two hours. You know, like, it took me a long time to be comfortable. And the way that you become more comfortable is, they'll talk about it in like nature education as finding your edge. And what wilderness does or nature immersion or even going to a park without bringing a cooler behind you is that you learn how to be okay without having everything that you need and want when you want it. And so that's a personal growth. Yeah. You're talking about changing mindsets and I am so into that. Right. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, when when you do through hikes or long hikes or backpacking or even camping, yeah. you learn how to be comfortable with less. And so are you practicing discomfort or are you learning how to be more comfortable? It's all it's kind of a, maybe a semantic argument at that point. But it is essential to say you really want to look at what you require to be comfortable physically. And if that stuff is just a huge pile of stuff behind you, it means that you can't go very far from that space. And so most of us have a range 
that we could play with through experiencing and growing in the face of not having those things, which then actually, it's like, is it minimalism or is it maximalism? Because now you've minimized the stuff, but you've maximized the potential experiences. So that's my, that's my third tip for going out for long periods of time. Yeah. And hang with people who do it. Because if you hang out with people who are afraid, and especially in my age group, of, you know, getting hurt or, and they just limit their exposure, then they will never find out that they can actually do it just fine. <laughs> so, yeah. Learn from your peers. And choose your peers wisely. <laughs> right. Well, this has been wonderful. Yeah. I really hope your book does well. I hope that people go out and get this book, read it themselves, share with their friends yes. and family that they'd like to be outside. Again, I feel like it's all ages, all people could benefit from this book. Very it's much walking. So. Yeah. Let me tell you the title again. It's walking gone wild, how to lose your age on the trail. You can find more about Dami at, I'm going to give you her website, transformation dash travel.com. You can also buy her book there, or you can connect with her on Facebook and her Facebook page, I think is pretty popular. It's walking women, the number 50 and the word plus. So I'll say it again, walking women, the number 50 and plus no spaces. And it's just people interacting, right? Are they working through your book or they're just discovering hiking or? Well, there's, there's two, there's walking women 50 plus, as you spelled it out, that's the page and you can sign up for a closed group and that's where people are interacting. So on walking women 50 plus, I share articles, I share, you know, just tips about, um, walking, but in the group, people are, you know, teaming up together to find local hiking groups uh, or to create them. They share hikes that they do. They they share, um, you know, uh, achievements that they've made or they talk about complaints that they have at a certain age and how they can that can help each other. So there are um, there's a page and a group walking with 50 plus. And you're going to be presenting at REI in the Bay Area on February. Can you tell me about that? Actually, yes. And the last week of February, I'm going to be in Santa Rosa, in Corte Madera and then in Berkeley. Uh, three presentations I have lined up right now. So for people in the Bay Area, they can come listen to me. I'm working on some other ones for Portland, probably late November, but I don't have exact dates yet, but they would be announced on my Facebook page. So if you're interested in finding out about that, that's that's also a possibility. Well, Dami, thank you so much for coming on. It was lovely talking to you. Well, I very much enjoyed it and happy walking to all of you. So Dami and I were just talking about getting your gear together, and I am really interested in the people that make gear. I am interested in the inventors and makers of our community, if you will. I'm interested in their personal stories, most deeply, I think, how they take an idea and turn it into stuff that they end up manufacturing for others. And so today's Maker Spotlight is on Earthrunners. They're a minimal sandal company founded by Michael Daly. Michael Daly has always enjoyed the flow state achieved in creating functional gadgetry to assist in his quest for growth and betterment. And I can already tell from reading this bio, this is going to be a cool interview. This disposition has led him down the paths of health, fitness, and engineering, resulting in the founding of Earthrunners in 2012. Michael, welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, 
So what happened in 2012 and the years leading up to it? Like, how did you get to develop Earthrunners? So I grew up, I'm a kid in sport. I was like kind of in a jock family of sorts. And um, I was also the kid in the garage. Mm. Always very uh, attracted to project. It just, time didn't really exist. And then college came around. It was like, what are you going to do? It seemed like an engineering degree would kind of back my pursuit of just wanting to create things in the world and um, studied mechanical engineering at San Diego State and was competing with what felt like against like calculator brains. And I was more like the creative. Mm. So it was very challenging. And um, I made it through. I feel like it kind of that sedentary kind of lifestyle took a toll on my body and when I graduated, I was just like so over the concept of actually being an engineer and um, just wanted to get back to my creative pursuits. So I took a year off. I told myself I wasn't going to do anything for at least a year. And towards the end of college, I kind of got more and more into alternative kind of progressive health. And so I continued to study that after college and then like a sequence of events after that uh, led to Earthrunners, read the book Born to Run, which a lot of people have heard about, and then also the book Earthing, basically discussing our lost connection with the Earth as a, like, as a human species. And then, um, so I'm like, I have this idea of Earthing kind of the back of my mind, which made a lot of sense to me. And um, this kind of movement of minimal footwear and people taking it as far as minimalist running sandals. And so one day I, uh, I was with a buddy of mine and we taped on a, a pair of flip-flop sandals using athletic tape. Just kind of like your typical ankle tape job that you would get if you had like a busted ankle. And um, just fell in love with the experience of running barefoot esque through the forest and very little footwear, the breeze between the toes, and just felt very primal to me. And I feel like I have a pretty strong primal streak in my personal DNA. So it was just like instant love at first uh, experience. And so um, I kind of studied the marketplace of existing minimal footwear sandals on the market and kind of found a niche of crossing the concept of a minimalist adventure sandal with a conductive conduit through the uh the sandal itself allowing for connection between the human body and the uh the skin of the earth so that kind of was the the setup and then started playing around with different uh earthing adventure sandal designs and um, a lady friend of mine who i had kind of just been collaborating with via email a little bit back and forth i I presented the idea to her and she kind of classified herself as a like a like a electrosensitive type of person so she really saw the demand and i feel like she saw it before i saw it Hmm. and um she created this support system she was kind of like a life coach of sorts and she just gave me that encouragement because Pretty much everybody else in my life was just like, yeah, I don't know about that. It sounds pretty far-fetched. <laughs> You're just taping sandals under your shoes and changing careers. 
Yeah, and they're like, dude, you just graduated with an engineering degree. You have so many options, and you're going to do this? And yeah. I was like, yep. Yeah, you know, this is funny because I have come across and hung out with and talked with probably about four mechanical engineers in the last 30 days, all of them who had both just a, a natural affinity for mechanical engineering, like that is a natural strength or an intelligence for them. They see the way things go together. They kind of feel and think in terms of forces, but they also were creatives at the same time who had these other outlets and all of them left mechanical engineering as a field because they found the way that they could express their mechanical intelligence really encroaching on this other equally valid part of them and almost all of them basically just took mechanical engineering into it's the same thing for me like I left physics and mathematics because I was like there's no grounding in the real world the touching world the moving world the physical world it was all just very theoretical and lines and on paper and on computers and with symbols and nothing that met my equal part of me that was my bio part my biology bio living systems and life and nature so just for anyone out there who thinks that you go to college to study a thing and then go get a job based on that thing, like you study engineering and thus you have to be an engineer, I think that maybe we just need to talk about that sometimes you go and you study a thing and the way you're going to apply it, you don't know yet. And then there's lots of options available. So anyway, that's the piece that I picked up on for you there. That definitely was very much the case. And I, I feel fortunate to have like basically been educated in that foundation because mm -hmm. there's a few things I learned here and there and probably more than I even give credibility to. But it was also the main thing I feel like I took away from college was it was the confidence to take on project that mm -hmm. seemed way more daunting mm -hmm. than I thought I could ever conquer. Like I was like at the beginning, I was like, yeah, I'll give this a try. Like, We'll see what happens. And um, I was just surprised. Like every year I was like, I guess I'm still in it. <laughs> still making earth runners. So what has surprised you about, so I guess from the engineering perspective, like, hey, I had no idea that this would happen when you went to make footwear or I guess on the other side, the flip side, like marketing or entrepreneurship, like actually starting a company. Like what's been the most surprising thing about developing earth runners? Um, that's a good question. I would say surprising, like the way I'm going to interpret that is like challenging, like what's been the most challenging, like the most unanticipated facet of the whole thing, Sure. which has just been like scaling up and creating a team. Hmm. Like I work very well independently, like I'm easily distracted. So it's nice for me just to have my space, be able to focus on what I'm doing, but it's been forced upon me that I have to like work with the team, collaborate with people to grow this. And um, it's one thing to train people, which I feel like I'm pretty good at and finding people and connecting with people, all things I'm pretty good at. But then it comes to managing people. And it's just like, <laughs> I, I, I was always just the person who never really uh, took praise very well. I just like, this is what you're supposed to do. I'm yeah. going to go do it. Yeah. And I don't really want 
thing. I don't want feedback that doesn't feel authentic. So for me to like, I don't know, just like me being that person and being a manager, manager is just that it's positive reinforcement and always telling people what to do and what not to do. I just, I never really like to be told what to do. So It's, it's been a little challenging for me to grow into that role, but I think it's, it's the best kind of, uh, situation for me because it's kind of making me focus on some of my weaknesses I'd say. Yeah. Personal development through a shoe company. <laughs> yeah. Spiritual development. Exactly. Honest, exactly. But. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this other word keeps popping out at me. Functional gadgetry. So like I have this idea of technology and I think technology as a term's kind of been co-opted to mean electronics but like the way that I understand a technology is like really taking something that didn't exist before or taking elements and creating something new that didn't exist before. What is a functional gadget? Like, do you can, are you saying that your shoes are a functional gadget? Yeah. I mean, um, huh. it's, it's just kind of was the best phrase that kind of yeah. sat in that sentence. And the other kind of funny note about the uh, the birthplace of Earth Runners was that it started in my parents' garage in the Silicon Valley, and the Silicon Valley is surrounded by mountains that are beautiful. So it was like this very progressive, grindy, innovative place with like a lot of access to nature. So it was just kind of the manifestation of its surroundings. And yes, I would say it is a gadget. I mean. I feel like you talk about it in your books of just uh, footwear in general is technology. Even if you go down to the most basic of footwear, like mm-hmm. a minimalist sandal, it's still technology. Yeah. And a gadget. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you had some association of like electronics with it. And like we do have an electronic component to our sandals so that like kind of brings it a little bit more into the realm of gadgetry. And that was kind of describing not only the sandals, but like all my projects. Yeah. And it's just like I'm trying to create something that's functional that I can use and not just like art that's like unuseful. Yeah, I can just hear a bunch of people, artists out there going, what? Art's not useful. But these are terms like we are in a a critical place right now as a species or at least as a culture, like a group of a species who's behaving in a particular way. So I just looked it up right now. So technology comes from the Greek word that is in Greek that I can't read, but it means science of craft. So it's the art, skill, or cunning of hand. So I'm just thinking, I just did a big interview with a technology company that I think everyone would agree is a technology and talking about what decisions our family has made in light of this tremendous amount of technology. And I was like, well, you're going to have to define technology for me because I think of it as anything created that didn't really exist without, you know, humans fashioning it to make it this thing. And so we've kind of segmented technology to mean electronics. So we wouldn't put shoes in a technology, although they are still the same. So I think there's going to be a time where in order for these conversations to progress, we're going to have to define what constitutes a technology? And I think I've talked about it before, probably in other podcasts, which is we might have to just to start defining things by the wake that they leave behind them, right? Because there's a big difference between, you know, a mass produced shoe and something that someone has just kind of made out of 
fewer parts in their own home. You know what I mean? So that's just my, that's my own interests kind of going off on a tangent right now. So let's go back to Earth Runners. You have some new products in the pipeline. You've got some new functional gadgetry that maybe you want to talk about, like a new performance sandal. And I was excited to see that you might be doing stuff for kids. So what can you tell us now about that? And you know, what's funny is I feel like we've been like connected for three to four years now. And about yeah. two years back, you had been wearing our sandals for a while. And I was just like, I'm always kind of prodding people for like, yeah, you can like tell me what you like about it, but I want you to really tell me what you don't like about it. Like, right, what right. Could it's be more better? helpful. Right. It's way more helpful. So I was just like, what could be better? And you were like, very simply, you're just like, better traction. And I was like, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. On the footbed. That was on the actual part that your foot's on. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's two components to right. that, right? There's like the foot friction on the bedding and right. then there's the sandal tread on the earth. And I've been working on both. Mm-hmm. We've had the canvas top, which we call our earth grip top in circulation now for about 18 months. And that really helps with foot traction on the sandal and yeah. like wet and dry, which is great. But then there's also the traction of the sole onto the earth in loose gravel and wet rock applications, which are probably some of the most difficult. And I've honestly experimented, I would say, with hundreds of different treads. Like it's slightly sad because there's quite a bit of waste in that scenario, but I feel like it's kind of what it takes to come up with new combinations of existing materials, kind of like what you were describing with technology. And, um, We've landed on something I'm really, really excited about. Just this really grippy outsole. It's got like a profile and a frequency of tread pattern that really grips into the earth in those two applications I was describing. And then the actual compound itself is very sticky, but also holds up well over time. And um, I've been testing them for the past six to 10 months. And um, we're going to get more people testing them very soon. It's one thing to find the materials and put them together in these unique combinations, but then it's another task to develop a system to streamline for manufacturing. And that's been the second, I, people even say that that's like more than 50% of the development process. And that's what we're in right now is kind mm-hmm. of ironing out that process. But yeah, I'm really excited about that. Uh, making the sandals kind of more adventure ready, able to connect with the earth on more terrains. And like you, uh, you also mentioned the kids sandals. We recently had like a poll with our audience and we were just like, what do we not offer that you would prefer us to offer? Like, what do you want us to create? And it was crazy. The, um, the feedback we got, I think it was like, let's say we had like a, a hundred different feedback points, like at least 20 or 30% of them were children's sandals. And that's like a wow. huge, huge percentage. So uh, that's in the works. We're excited about it. We've been um, making those. We've made those in the past, but it just wasn't very streamlined because we're making them all custom and it just took forever. And we couldn't really charge enough to make them like a viable business situation for us. So now we're just making standard children options and pretty excited about it. Yeah, that is. It's so challenging. (laughs) There's like a, I think, a general idea that minimalist footwear should cost less than non-minimalist footwear the idea being that a shoe is solely like that you're only charging based on the mass of a shoe and not 
really paying the same amount of people to fashion it, no matter what shape it is, et cetera. But children's shoes is a big deal because like, I feel like the investment in foot development, it's better to invest when they're younger than when they're older, when they're really setting ranges of motion and bone shape is still really based on, on use. Yet kids need shoes. They grow so quickly. Shoes get expensive. Like shoes are way more expensive for kids because you're having to buy, you know, a much greater volume. So I appreciate you coming on, just kind of sharing some of the work that goes into making something that I forget non-makers might forget. You know, the idea that you're testing, you're sampling, you're seeing what fails, and you're going through many failures before what you end up bringing to market is brought. Anything else you want to let us know? Not really. I mean, I just appreciate the opportunity to get on here and just kind of talk about our story. I mean, I feel like it's something that's just been such a huge part of my personal story. And it's it just keeps growing, getting out to more and more people. So I think it'll be interesting for people just to kind of hear little tidbits of the backstory of me kind of utilizing my skills to leverage what I feel like is kind of some of the most accessible technology out there to kind of assist in like a healthy and happy lifestyle. Yeah, well, footwear is ubiquitous pretty much, at least across our culture. So I like talking with people who make shoes because it's like almost everyone out there has an entire closet full of them and may have never thought about it. But at least these listeners, they're thinking about their shoes, maybe even more than we we should. (laughs) All right. Well, Michael Daly is the founder of Earthrunners. You can find out more about Earthrunners at earthrunners.com and then also Follow them on Instagram. I like your Instagram account. And is that just Earthrunners? It is, yes. Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Okay, let's do some quick business. You just heard me talk about tending to your feet, knees, and hips. And just FYI, Jill Miller and I are leading a movement retreat on just that. This February at 1440 Multiversity, which is in the Bay Area, California. Learn how to get these parts better supporting your body and your larger movement feet. But that is not all. I would also like to announce two more retreats. If you are keen to move your DNA with me in person, check out nutritiousmovement.com. Go to the calendar. Go to Katie's Live Events. We have listed two new opportunities for you to do just that in 2019. I will be at the 1440 Multiversity again in California in April, and I'm going to be at Kripalu, all you East Coasters who are always asking me to come to the East Coast. I am coming this next upcoming June to teach Move Your DNA Alignment and Natural Movement on and off the mat. Same course, one East Coast and one West Coast location. Now, this is a class that I've geared to mat movers and mat-based movement teachers, specifically how to increase your movement diversity as well as your total volume of movement by considering and practicing a broader definition of alignment. Just like I was explaining earlier about is back bending a natural movement, like I want to give clarity over all these definitions. I have so many people coming up and saying I have a mat-based practice, I own a mat-based studio, But I get now that I've been missing this diversity. I read Movie or DNA. I want to be doing all these things. I don't know how to fit it in my class format. This is a class for you. I want you to walk away with a toolbox 
that helps you start to bridge the gaps of movement within the context that you already feel comfortable teaching. Like if you already have the equipment, if you already have the studio space, working with what you have and what you can do, I will show you how to diversify movement in that context, whether it's for your personal practice or if it's for those that you are teaching. Check the link in the show notes for details or just go to the website and you can find it. That is it for Move Your DNA this time. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. Until next time, take a hike! This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.